Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was the author of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, and one time he decided to play a joke on a group of his friends. So he sent a telegram to 12 of them. They were all men of great virtue and great reputation. And the telegram simply said, fly at once, all is discovered. Now, the story goes that within 24 hours, all 12 of them had left the country. (laughs) If you were to receive a message like that, or somebody were to look you in the eye and say, I know what you did, what would come to mind? What hidden thing, what secret sin might spring to your mind? You know, over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking through the qualifications of church leaders. And as we've done so, I've asked you to take a magnifying glass to your life, to look at your life and these characteristics and ask yourself, does this describe me? As we've been looking through 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus 1 and 1 Peter 5, we've seen that these are high standards, these characteristics that church leaders are called to. And what I've asked you to do is to look at your own life and see how you measure up. Because as you'll recall, they're not just measures of leadership, but they are marks of Christian maturity. And thus, they are something that should be seen in all of our lives. So today, I invite you to turn with me in your Bible again to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we're going to pick up in verse 2 again, where we left off last time. The next qualification that we find in 1 Timothy 3, 2 is that it says a leader is to be able to teach. Now, the word literally means skillful. Uh, A teacher is to be skillful in handling God's word. Vine's commentary says that this is not merely a readiness to teach that is implied, but it is the spiritual power to do so as as the outcome of prayerful meditation in the word of God and the practical application of its truth to oneself. Now, as you look at that word, skillful, able to teach, would you say that it describes you when it comes to the word of God? Are you one who reads and studies and meditates on God's word so that you are able to not only apply it to your own life, but to apply it to the life of others? One of my professors in seminary, the the late Dr. Howard Hendricks, affectionately known as Prof, used to tell us as men in the classroom that as we prepared for ministry, he said, men, you need to teach from your overflow. Your lives need to be so full of the word of God that you teach from the overflow in your own life. You know, we've had a vivid illustration of what this might look like. Just uh, recently, we had some some great and muchly needed rains. And you'll recall, as uh, we had that kind of torrential downpour, the water was flowing through the streets. It was overrunning the curbs and overflowing in some areas as there was some flash flooding. And if we contrast that with what we've had more so is the drought-like conditions where creeks and, and shallow stock ponds and other things have dried up, where the aquifer has been dropping lower and low, lower in the level, and we've been having these, these water restrictions. This is a, a picture of what our lives could look like here. You see, God doesn't want us to have a shallow spiritual pond that is stagnant or spiritually dry. When you think of those stock ponds on ranches that have dried up, the ones that were very shallow, uh, over time they became mud holes and then just dry basins. But those that had a constant filling, whether it was a live water source flowing in, a spring-fed or something like that, they, even in the harshest conditions, stayed full of water and became a place of refreshment for livestock. 
As you think about your own life, which one best describes you? Do you have a shallow stock pond that dries up quickly, or do you have a deep reservoir that is constantly being filled? If I were to walk up to you today and say, you know, I'm going to be gone next week, and I need you to preach next Sunday, what would you think? Would you immediately tell me, well, you know, I'm going to be out of town too? (laughs) Or would you get excited? Would you say, you know, there's so much that I've been learning. There's so much that God has been teaching me that I just want to share. I want to overflow and tell everybody about what I've been learning. If you can't say that you would be able to share from your overflow in your life what you've been learning on your own, then it's probably a good indication that you need to go deeper into your own personal time of study, deeper into the Word of God. As we think of what leaders are asked to do, 1 Timothy 3.6 tells us they are not to be a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Not only is there the sense of maturity that comes in being a long-term believer, but the, the meaning of the word that is here, when it says not a new convert, the word is a neophyte. It literally means one who is newly planted. And we see that the reason he is to be a mature believer is not only because with time comes depth and maturity, but also there is the reality as 1 Timothy 3.6 came that said, if you promote somebody too quickly, they may become conceited. They may become arrogant. They may fall into the same sin of pride that the devil did. You know, if pride could cause God's highest angel to fall, what could it do to you? Pride will not only damage your relationship with God, but it'll damage your relationship with others. As you think about those who are egotistical or always talking about themselves, people don't really want to be around those individuals. But leaders, as we've seen, are not to be those who are prideful. In a previous message, we talked about 1 Peter 5, 2 through 3. There it said that they are to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Maturity in ministry is essential because there are opportunities for pride. Pastors are sometimes put up on a pedestal and people will talk about how great uh, they are, their ministry. After a sermon, sometimes people will come up and say, Pastor, that was a great message prof that I mentioned to you earlier, Howard Hendricks would tell us, men, when that part of the service comes, that's called the glorifying the worm ceremony. And he said, don't, you know, if somebody thanks you for your message, thank them back, but don't, don't linger over it. Don't let that give you a puffed up head. As we look at this qualification for an elder being able to teach, it's not limited just to a pulpit ministry. Being able to teach is in all situations. It can be in a group setting like an adult Bible fellowship, the Sunday school classes we have. It can be somebody who is in a uh, small group situation that is facilitating or leading a group. It can be in a one-on-one mentoring situation. Being able to teach is not just to a large group. It is, it is able to uh, overflow the word of God into the lives of others. All of us here who are parents have been called on to overflow into the lives of our children. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verses 6 through 7, fathers were commanded this way. It says, these words which I am commanding commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk on the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. 
All of us as Christians have been commissioned. You read the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And it tells us in 19 through 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. As we look at those who are church leaders, another qualification in Titus 1.9 that is tied to this is it says they are to be able to exhort in sound doctrine. They are to be correct in what they teach of the, the Bible. The word literally means healthy. The picture here is not of, of uh, feeding your flock junk food. We've all seen uh, in our day, you know, the Bible warned us in the Old Testament. It said there will be a famine for hearing the word of God. And Jesus said that people will seek out teachers who will tickle their ears. But what God calls on us to do instead is to teach the hard truths, the things that will grow people to maturity. He warned in another part in the Bible that there are those who are still longing for the milk, the elementary things when he says, by now you should be teachers of the word. And the word that he uses there is he says you should be grown and mature is where we get our English word steroids. It's steros. And it means those hard, meaty, uh, building, muscle-building type of things. And so an elder is not to be one who, who just gives the junk food from the word, the pop psychology or the popular sermons that we sometimes hear in our day. And so the, the word of God is to be taught to the people of God. Titus 1.9 also says an, an elder is to be able to refute those who contradict because there will be times that people will come with error and they will, they will debate you or they will say, well, this truth is, uh, God's truth is no greater than what I believe the world's truth is or other things. And you are to be able to refute those who contradict. This, again, is why you need to be spending time in the word of God yourself so that you know what God's word says and you know where to go to show people and say, based upon the authority of God's word, this is what it says. Now, as we talked about last week, when we teach the truth of God's word, we need to do it in love. In 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 25, it says, And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. It says, With gentleness we correct those who are in opposition. This is why Titus 1.7 says that a leader is not to be pugnacious. The word literally means to be a violent person. It describes those who are bullies. Have you ever met somebody like this? Somebody who bullies you? Somebody who overruns you uh, with, with information and, and facts? We've all met those people. And instead, what an elder is to be, 1 Timothy 3.3 says that he is to be gentle. It says uh, he is not to be self-willed in Titus 1.7. As you think about those who are leaders, they are to be gentle in how they correct. This word self-willed means one who likes to oppose or argue, especially with those who are in authority. This word is only used one other time in the whole Bible. It's found in 2 Peter 2.10. And there it says, Those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring, self-willed, they do not tremble even when they revile angelic majesties. They don't even tremble when they face an angelic messenger. Do you remember when there was the fight over the body of Moses? And it says, Michael, the archangel, the highest created uh, angel other than Satan, they were fighting over the body. 
And the way that Michael the archangel combated is he said, the Lord rebuke you. He said, I'm not coming based upon my power. I'm coming based upon the authority of the God of heaven. And when we deal with individuals like this, it says they're not even afraid of angelic uh, messengers. And if they're willing to have that kind of a heart, you can see why there's, you know, that they, they like to get into fights with anybody, especially those who are in places of authority. If you're the kind of person who says, I've got nothing to learn or it's my way or the highway, then you're not qualified to be a leader. Because leadership is not lone rangering it. It is getting the collective wisdom of the group of the board and it is working through issues and having iron sharpening iron as one man sharpens another, the scripture says. In elder meetings in our church, the men who are all around the table are godly leaders and there are times of discussion and debate. And when we walk out of the room, we walk out of there unified as one voice. There may be a difference of opinions around the board table, but once the discussion takes place, there is unity of the direction that we go in, in as a church. So if you're an individual who cannot function in that way, then you're not going to function in, as a church leader. Another qualification related to this is found in 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, where it says a leader is to be uncontentious. The word literally means peaceable. This doesn't describe somebody who gets run over or is afraid to speak. Uh, this word has the meaning of the root word comes from a word that means military combat or strife. And so, again, it's a leader who is able to refute and a, a leader who is willing to confront. It's one who is a shepherd of the flock. The, the scripture warns us that there will be wolves that will come in and seek to devour the flock. And there are times that leaders in the church have to get on the front line and confront some very difficult and very uh, hardened individuals. As heresy is being brought in, we see what's happening in Christendom today as there are churches and denominations that are being split where people are desirous of being politically correct rather than biblically correct. And there are whole church denominations that are going and casting aside the authority of the word of God. So there are times as leaders that you have to be in confrontation. You'll recall that last time I told you that leadership is a place that serves as a lightning rod. You don't have to go looking for a fight. There are plenty of times that criticism or trouble will come your way. And when you deal with it, you are to be gentle. Uh, Proverbs 15.1 tells us a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A church leader is to be one who learns how to diffuse a situation while still upholding truth. There was a pastor who was, had a member in his church who was always getting into fights. And he went to this guy and he said, Brother Perkins, I heard you got in yet again another fist fight. And he said, we talked about this. We talked about how the Bible says that if somebody strikes you on the cheek, you're to turn the other cheek. And, and he says, well, pastor, I would have done that. But he hit me in my nose and I've only got one of those. <laughs> again, as leaders, you have to look at a situation and say there are times that I will have to fight, but there is a way to fight when you do. Now, in those times where we correct error, we do it in the right way. You can disagree with somebody without being disagreeable. You've all probably seen debates where somebody wins the debate on technical points, but the audience says they lost because of the way in which they did it. And so as leaders, we are to confront error, but we are to speak the truth in love. Now, as we talk about fights... Uh, we have to decide what is major and what is minor. 
There are individuals, we saw earlier, there are those who want to uh, confront and revile even angelic messengers. There are times that you have to decide, is this something worth fighting over? There are doctrinal issues that, yes, you, you can go to the mat on and even split a church over. But there are also things of preference, things that really are not that important. And what we have to decide is, what are the majors? What are the essentials? I've used the illustration with you before of an airplane, and if you've ever flown on a, a big 747 coming overseas like the admirals have come over from Moldova, they flew on a big jetliner. And if you were on one of those going overseas, as you've watched these things take off, if you've ever sat at the window seat, you can look out and watch the wings. And at the ends, they, the, those wings will move between three to six feet at their tips. And the reason for that is that if they don't, the plane will break up. There has to be some flexibility on the extremes. Now, you don't want your wings wobbling up against the fuselage. Those things need to be firmly attached. There is no wiggle room there. And it's the same thing as a church. We have to decide what are the things where there is zero wiggle room attached to the fuselage, so to speak. And if you want to know what those things are, you can read the Nicene or Apostles' Creed, as it's called, and look at that. When it talks about we believe in, in, in God and we believe in the Trinity and we believe in the authority and the virgin birth and the resurrection of Jesus, those are the things where there are no wiggle rooms. But out on the extremes, the areas of preference, whether somebody speaks in tongues, whether somebody's form of worship is a little different than what you prefer, that's the wiggle room areas. And I'm not going to break fellowship with somebody over those things. And so this is what we need to learn is what are the majors? What are the things we really need to fight over? Now, this next qualification is one that some say is a minor issue and others say it's a major issue. This qualification is found in 1 Timothy 3.3 and 1 Timothy 3.8 and Titus 1.7. When it speaks of elders and deacons, it says they are not to be addicted to wine. Now, what the, the word actually means is to linger with the cup. So you can picture, you've seen pictures of a drunk that is passed out or nursing their drink. And this is the idea here. Uh, in Ephesians 5.18, it says as Christians, we are not to get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But we are to be filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. As we talked about last time, the word here means to be free from the influence of anything other than the Holy Spirit. So as you look at your life, as we look at this issue here of being addicted to alcohol, uh, it, it has a broader application to lots of things. You can be addicted to drugs. You can be addicted to pornography. You can be addicted to food. You have to ask yourself as you look at your life, is there something controlling you? Other than the Holy Spirit, what is it that has influence in your life? Is it drawing you closer to God or is it pushing you away from God in your walk with him? As you think about this idea of drinking and, and, and what it looks like, let me give you an illustration. I've, when I was in college, I helped start a Christian fraternity called Bucks. It's, it's, the Greek letters are Brothers Under Christ, Beta Upsilon Chi. And the Bucks fraternity, we started at the University of Texas in Austin. And that fraternity has since grown nationally. It's, over, it's in 14 states and over 40 university campuses at this point. There are over 5,000 Christian men on college campuses in Bucks this year alone. And so as you look at this fraternity, one of the things that we founded it on was desiring to be a, a contrast to the Greek system at the University of Texas. 
And as you know, UT is not a little Christian college. It's kind of known as a party school, and there were lots of problems uh, related to the Greek fraternity system. And so myself and a couple men got together and said, we want to have an ability to reach into the Greek community. We want to also give uh, a, a, a different face to Christianity on the campus because people said, well, Christians are those groups of people that are against everything and are not, you know, they're sticks in the mud. And so we started this Christian fraternity based on all-male brotherhood and fellowship, to then be a discipling organization that would also reach into the campus. And one of the things that we said is we will not have any drinking at our parties. And we put in the, the national guidelines that if any fraternity, any chapter ever violates this, you can pull their charter. Now, you may be sitting here thinking, well, gosh, those are really fun college parties, no drinking, boring, right? Actually, we saw the opposite. Because people had fun when they were sober. And uh, we had this, this rush party one day. It was in the student union. And it was an open party. So during Greek week, everybody's getting drunk at the other parties. And they come to this one. And they walk in. And everybody's dancing and having a good time. And, and I know dancing is an issue for some. We're not going to get into that. I'm dealing with drinking today. Uh, but so when you're dealing with drinking, the, you know, these, these three guys show up at the door and they look in and they see everybody having a good time. And, uh, you know, I'm at the door and I said, come on in, it's an open party. And so they immediately run over to the table and they start downing the punch. I mean, just one drink after another. And I walked over and I said, you guys like the punch? And they go, man, it's great. You know, what's in it? And uh, then they pointed everybody having a good time. And I said, oh, well, they're filled with the spirit. And one of the guys goes, yeah, dude, what spirit's in the punch? You know? And I said, oh, no, no, no. They, I said, you know, there's ginger ale, there's punch, there's, but there's no alcohol in there. You see, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, these three guys, you know, almost spit their, their drink out at that point. They looked at me and said, what are you talking about? And uh, I called a couple of the other uh, Bucks guys over, and I said, let's go outside and talk for a minute. And we started to share the gospel with them. Well, one guy very quickly said, dude, I'm out of here. And he took off. But the other two guys stayed, and they ended up receiving the Lord. And we saw that every year. We saw people come to Christ through these parties, through these things. Another thing in the charter says is there will be two guys who give their testimony at every party. And so as you think about your life and you say, what is it that's controlling you? This, this issue of alcohol, as we know, is something that controls a lot of people. Now, you may be sitting here saying, well, Roger, I've got it under control. Uh, I don't have a problem with alcohol. Sometimes people, when it comes to drinking, will, will look at a passage in the Bible and they say, you know, I'm not an alcoholic, so that's not a problem for me. If you are somebody with a family history, then you need to stay away from drinking, period. Uh, but for those who don't have that problem, some, another area that we see a lot in society is underage drinking. And so if you're somebody who is not of a legal age, it's not a matter of saying, well, as a Christian, I can drink. No, you can't, because the Bible says to obey civil authority. And so God's principle there is that the law of the land that says you should not drink needs to be obeyed. Now, maybe you're saying, well, Roger, none of those things apply to me. So is it okay for me as a Christian to drink? Well, in 1 Corinthians 10.23, we're told that all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. So just because something is allowed, you have to ask yourself, is it of profit? Now, you may be sitting here saying, well, Roger, in my case, it is profitable. 
because you see, I have a medical condition. And my doctor has told me that drinking a glass of wine or something else may be helpful to me for my health. Friends, my doctoral degree is a D-min. And what that stands for in medical terms is it doesn't mean anything. So if you have an MD, a medical doctor, who has told you to drink uh, for your health, then you need to listen to your doctor. As I said, my doctoral degree is in theology. So let me tell you what the Bible says. Now, as we look through the scriptures regarding the issue of alcohol, in John chapter 2, the first recorded miracle that Jesus did was where he turned water into wine. And if alcohol in and of itself were an evil thing, God himself would not have turned water into wine. Now, there are some who try to dismiss this. They'll, they'll get into discussions about the proof of that alcohol was less than today. And, uh, you know, Ephesians told us, do not be drunk with wine because that's dissipation. Uh, if you drank enough of any alcoholic beverage, you're going to get drunk. And so let's just kind of move beyond the argument about whether the proof of the alcohol was greater then or today. When it comes to drinking, what we need to do is look at the, the context of culture. And we find a situation in Jesus' day in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4. You'll recall that most of the meat in that day was sacrificed to pagan idols. So culturally speaking, an issue of their day, while drinking was not like ours, uh, eating meat was a, a situation that was dealt with in the Bible. And it says, therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. First Corinthians 8, 4 and following goes on to say, however, not all men have this knowledge, but some, having been accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. These are people who used to go to the pagan temples, offer sacrifices to the false gods, and they associated the meat with uh, this pagan worship. And it says, Paul says, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. And so what he says is, but take care in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So you can substitute the word alcohol for meat in this situation. And what he's saying is, because there is a stigma attached to eating meat, or in our case, to drinking alcohol, you have to look beyond the issue of is it in and of itself a bad thing to what is the potential ramifications of a believer in that day eating meat or in our day drinking. And what he says is that because there are some who are weak, that is immature in their faith, maybe baby believers who are looking at you as a mature person, especially a church leader, and they say, well, this is a godly man or woman. And if they're drinking, well, then it must be okay. And so what Paul says is you need to be careful that this liberty, this freedom that you have, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Paul, as he deals with the issue in his own life, says in 1 Corinthians 8, 13, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Paul, who was an apostle, a leader in the church, said, I know very well there are no real uh, pagan gods. That it's just, it's a neutral situation. Just because somebody sacrificed to this pagan thing, the meat is not tainted. 
but because other people see it as such. And they say, well, if Paul being a leader in the church is doing it, it must be okay. Paul says, you know what? I would rather give up my own liberty so that I do not become a stumbling block to others. And when it comes to the issue of drinking, that's the decision I've personally made for me. Because as a pastor, I know there are people who have a problem with drinking. I know there are individuals that if they see me as a pastor drinking, it could create issues for their faith. It could also cause people to say, well, I'm not going to Wayside Chapel if that pastor is, you know, drinking. And so what I've chosen to do personally is to give up a liberty that I have as a person, as a believer. I don't believe alcohol is a bad thing. I believe, again, not all things that are lawful are profitable. I, I believe that it's definitely wrong to get drunk. So when it comes to your own situation, you have to ask yourself, what will you do as an individual? Every man, every woman here has to make your own personal decision based upon the scripture. If you're looking for me to say it is this or that black and white, I'm not going to tell you that. This is for you to decide based upon the totality of the scripture. I know very godly uh, men and women. I know pastors. I know leaders who drink. I don't have a problem sitting at a table with them if they're drinking. I tell people sometimes, you know, I'll walk up to individuals sometimes and they'll have a drink and they're, uh, and I go, it's fine. You know, it doesn't bother me. We have parties on our street periodically and the neighbors will bring down a, a cooler with beer or wine when we have a street party. And, you know, if they say, hey, you want one? I don't go, oh my gosh, I'm a pastor. What's wrong with you? I just go, no, thank you. I've got my Dr. Pepper. It's a non-issue. But if we make it an issue, it can become a, a bigger thing. And so you just have to, again, decide what are you going to do. But what you don't need to do is hide it. If somehow you're convicted and you feel bad about it and you're putting your bottles in the neighbor's trash because you don't want people <laughs> to, to see it in your trash, and that, then there's, there's something in your conscience that is convicting you. And so you have to ask yourself, why am I doing this? And so these are the kind of things the Bible, Paul says very clearly, I've chosen to take a liberty that I have and set it aside for the sake of the gospel. So when it comes to the issue of can a leader drink, uh, this is something that you need to decide on your own. Now, the next issue is in 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, and it says that a leader is to be free from the love of money. And this is a, a qualification that is also like the next one found in 1 Timothy 3.8 and Titus 1.7, where it says he is not to be fond of sordid gain. What this is not saying, this is not saying that it is wrong for a Christian to have money, for a person to maybe even be wealthy if they are a believer. What this is saying is that you should not have a love of money. It is saying you are not, to, it's like the issue we talked about earlier where you are free from the influence of anything other than the Holy Spirit. Money in and of itself is a neutral issue. It is what you do with it that either makes it a, a tool that is good or bad. And it is your attitude toward it that can affect it. You know, many people will take 1 Timothy 6.10 and they will misquote it. And they will say, money is the root of all evil. Friends, what the Bible actually says in 1 Timothy 6.10 is the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away and from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. 
See, what the Bible says is there is nothing wrong with having nice things or affluence as long as those things do not have you. If you are controlled by it, if you're, you're every waking moment in thought is how can I get more, how can I make more, how can I, or you're coveting your neighbor's stuff, or the, that, is, that is a sin. But what God says is there is nothing wrong with having nice things. If you have worked hard in life, if you have excelled, if God has blessed you, uh, that's great. Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes that that is your reward in life is to eat and drink and enjoy the, the, the labor that you've performed. But what the Bible says is that money is something that is not to be what our focus is. In Matthew 6.21, it says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so when it comes to the issue of money, our attitude toward it or what we do with it does reveal our heart. Do you remember last week as we talked about what is on the inside often shows up on the outside? And that if somebody is shaken with a cup, what is in there will spill out and be seen. And what we do with what we have is really an indicator of what's going on in our life, where our greatest love is. As you look at your life, what do you do with what God has given to you? With what you've been entrusted with, your time, your talents, your treasures? Are you generous in giving to God with it? Are you somebody who supports God's work or missionaries with it? Are you somebody who freely uh, looks at needs and, and steps in as the hands and feet of Christ to meet some of the needs that you see? As you think in terms of giving, do you really give to God? Now, I'm not talking about dollar-wise. I'm not asking you how much do you give because dollar-wise doesn't necessarily mean anything. Because, again, remember, it's all about the attitude of your heart. If you remember when Jesus was in the temple watching those who were giving, in Mark chapter 12 and Luke 21, he saw a poor widow who came up and put into the offering uh, box what amounted to literally pennies. And there were others who were filling the plate to overflowing. And Jesus said, this woman gave more than everybody else. Not because of the amount, but because of the heart that went with it. She gave sacrificially out of her need rather than out of her surplus. So as you look at your life, ask yourself, are you somebody who, who holds on to things or has this attitude? Or do you freely say, God, you've given it and my hands are open and I want to give you more. I want to help. Now, sometimes people will say, well, Roger, uh, what about the tithe? In the Bible, we find where there is 10%. That's what the word tithe means, 10%. And people say, shouldn't we be giving 10%? Shouldn't we tithe? And you've heard me talk in a past sermon on, on biblical giving, what the tithe is. What the tithe is was a, what Abraham gave to Melchizedek, this representative of God, showing that because he was the priest king, a representative of God, 10% was a way to acknowledge the superiority of another. And so when Abraham gave that gift, what he was doing was acknowledging this priest king as a representative of God. It was being given to God's work. And he was saying, I, I'm acknowledging that you, God, are superior to me and that what I have has come from you. And that's a, that is what a tithe is. <clears throat> you don't have to be legalistic and say, I'm going to give 10%. Friends, there are some people who give much more than 10%. And they are not overgiving, and there are some who give under 
And again, that's a whole other sermon for me to preach another time. But when it comes to this, you need to look at your heart and say, are you giving to God freely? Are you acknowledging God in what you give? Again, tithe is just kind of the standard of saying, I recognize the superiority of God over me and that the gift is coming from me. Studies show that the average evangelical Christian gives 2.57% of their income, 2.5% roughly of their income. So as you think in terms of, of that and your life, just ask yourself, are you one who freely gives to God? A leader is to be one who is generous, one who supports God's work with what God has given to him. There was another study done that said if you were to take every Christian in the churches in America, and every Christian in the churches of America were suddenly to lose their jobs and all go on welfare, and they were to tithe 10% of their welfare checks. Are you with me so far? You've just lost your income, whether you're making 20000 a year, 50000 500000 a year. You've all lost your jobs, and you're now on welfare. And you're going to give 10% of your welfare to the church. What do you think would happen to giving in the churches in America? It would go up 35%. 35% giving in the churches in America would go up if every Christian was on welfare and tithe 10%. Imagine what we could do at Wayside Chapel if giving went up 35%. Now, at this moment, you may be thinking, he's trying to get my money. Look, the offering plates have already been passed. They're not coming around again. Uh, and it's a matter of full disclosure. What somebody say, hit him again? I don't know. <laughs> All bills are paid. Giving is at 96% of year-to-date budget, so we're in a healthy situation. I'm not talking about this because I need your money. You've heard me say every time I ever talk about money, if you don't want to give to God's work at Wayside Chapel, then don't. God doesn't need your money. It is a privilege that we have as believers, as a form of our worship, to support God's work. We don't give to meet the budget. We give as a form of worship. But dream with me for a moment as to what we could do if giving were to go up 35%. How many more missionaries could we support around the world? How much additional work could we do in this city? You know, as I look at the summer that is coming, we're sending out missions teams all over the United States and all over the world that are about to go out. We have missions that is going to be happening right here on this property. In just a few weeks, this sanctuary will be filled with hundreds and hundreds of kids. And then a few weeks later, we're going to have Pine Cove Base Camp on our property where there will be almost 200 kids there. There will be over 700 kids ministered to in those two events as they are going to be hearing the word of God, as we're going to be impacting young lives. In the fall, we're going to be hosting a new marriage initiative here at Wayside Chapel. We're partnering with San Antonio Marriage Initiative and uh, Gary and Barb Rosberg with America Family Coaches Live to bring a, uh, an event here to San Antonio where we are going to be reaching out to military marriages. The highest divorce rate is among military marriages. And we are going to be hosting here at Wayside a five-star dinner where we are going to take over 100 military couples, active duty uh, service personnel, and we are going to give them a five-star dinner where we're going to feed them. We're going to have them have this nationally known speaker that is going to talk to them about their marriages. And then there's going to be follow-ups where we're forming small groups to mentor and disciple these military troops in our city. 
This is just the first of what hopefully will be many events as we are going to be reaching into the military community to help save marriages. And those are things that are being done by the gifts that are given through Wayside Chapel. The parking lot expansion is going to be happening sometime. Um, (laughs) We've finally gotten the final clearance from the city of Castle Hills. So this summer sometime, uh, we will beginning we will begin the expansion of the parking lot. We need additional space. Those of you know it. As you come and you can't find parking or you ride the shuttle buses and things, that money is in the bank as well. So, again, I'm not trying to get money from you, but those things take a lot of money to to support. Now, as we're dealing with the growth at Wayside, uh, one of the things that we are looking at doing, you'll hear more about this at the town hall meeting in August, but we are going to be looking at launching a satellite church from Wayside Chapel. As you know, those of you who have been a part of Wayside for many years, we've planted many churches in our community. The last one we planted was Vista Community Church over by SeaWorld six years ago with Pastor James Mendoza. And that church has been thriving and growing. Uh, But what we're looking at doing in the next 18 months is launching a satellite location of Wayside Chapel. And we're going to be planning that up toward the north between here and Hillside, another one of our satellite church, uh, church plants from years ago. And the reason we're doing that is not only to create more room here at Wayside, but also to be missional. Because in the city, uh, there are lots of great churches. Again, not all of them uh, are, are teaching the word of God like we do at Wayside. There are many great partner churches that are. But there are people who say, I want to come to Wayside Chapel. And I want my friends to come to Wayside Chapel. But studies show the average non-churched or de-churched person will only drive 15 to 20 minutes from their house to be in a church. And so what we are going to be doing is launching a satellite location of Wayside up to the north. And uh, that will open up not only room on our property, much-needed children's space and young families and parking and other things, but it will also allow us to reach into the city and to be impacting it with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ and multiplying again what we have here. We'll be talking more about that uh, in August at the town hall meeting. But whether it's that ministry or all the other ministries that we are doing, it takes godly men and women. It takes those who are leaders. It takes those who are are able to teach. It takes those who have a love for Lord and want to be reproducing disciples. And so as you look at your life, ask yourself, what are you doing to grow? What are you doing to be a partner and to join us in the privilege that we have of sharing God's life-changing message with the world around us, to reach this community and the world for Jesus Christ. As you think about these qualifications, the ones we've looked at in the past weeks and the one that we'll close out with next Sunday, I want you to look at your life and keep asking yourself, how am I doing? And what do I need to do to keep pressing on toward the goal that God has given to me to be a mature man or woman for Christ? Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the mirror that it is that you call on us to look into to see how are we doing and what can we do. We thank you, God, that in your word you also tell us that it's not a performance-based Christianity, that you don't love us more when we become good enough to get to you. You loved us enough to die for us when we were sinners far from you. So we thank you, Lord, for your word, not just the written word that teaches us how to grow, 
but for the living word, Jesus Christ, who was given to be our sacrifice, the one who would go to the cross and die to pay the penalty of death for our sins. Father, may we who know him, we who know your son, the Messiah, be those who are willing to go into the world to be your messengers and to share this life-changing message, this never-changing message with an ever-changing world. Send us out now, Lord, to be your missionaries. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.